Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Red Mage Podcast. As always, I'd like to present the opportunity to check out my site at theredmagepodcast.com and consider supporting me on Patreon, making a purchase at the shop, or simply sharing this podcast with a colleague. Now, with that out of the way, this week we're going to begin the define phase of the design process. In this phase, we will epoach, define user segments, review a user journey, provide case studies, and define the space and technologies we'll be working with. Of course, this won't be all in one episode, it'll be broken up so that it's digestible, because there's so much information out there that I need to relay to you. Today, we will begin with the approach. An approach is to suspend one's disbelief and question the question in order to identify the core issue. To do this, I'm going to be using a IDEO method called the five whys. In this method, I will basically state what I'm doing, which is exploring esports as a soft case study for burnout, and then ask why five times. Each time I answer, I will dig deeper into identifying the root cause. After stating why five times, I can review um, the answers and identify which layer um, or layers need to be addressed uh, to get to the core issue. Sometimes that may be one issue or it might be several and I will have to pick what I'm able to address with my skill set um, and go down that avenue. So even if you're listening to this and you're asking five whys and you see it a little differently and you have a certain skill set, I really recommend taking the initiative and going forth uh, and developing a solution on your own. Part of this podcast is to create value, and that's not just you following along with me, but me sharing information so that you're empowered to go forth and also develop your own solutions. So before we get into the five whys, There's a lot of information I needed to share that was a result of additional research I conducted. This research complements everything I've I've gone through in the show so far, but it also fills in gaps um, that weren't addressed in previous episodes. Lastly, it's necessary that I share this information with you because if we jump into the approach, you're not going to be on the same page with me as I run through the five whys. And that will create a disconnect um, of where I'm coming from or what I'm doing. Um, I don't want to make it sound like I'm pulling information out of the air or that I'm just running based on assumptions. And as a designer tasked with slaying wicked problems, my process really is guided by research to ensure that the solution I deliver is informed and benefits the community I'm serving. And that's really important because One thing that happens as a designer is that when we create something, we're not just kind of making something and leaving it. Whatever we make really has an impact and can help shape and mold the future of a community or a people in a sense. And there's a big ethical burden that falls on that. So designers can't work off assumptions. It has to be informed. So getting into my additional areas as to where I was going, we're going to start off with additional avenues of therapy. 
And in looking for other avenues in therapy, I discovered the potential and versatility of art therapy. The following research articles um, from the National Library of Medicine inform my exploration of the therapy, um, as well as a series of TED Talks, the American Art Therapy Association, who I'm also starting to kind of explore their, their research, which is really great and informative, and a series of popular media searches that resulted with videos and so forth. But the main articles and TED Talks were for the National uh, Library of Medicine, a paper called The Connection Between Art, Healing, and Public Health, a Review of Current Literature, and a paper called Effectiveness of Art Therapy with Adult Clients in 2018, What Progress Has Been Made. As for the TED Talks, Art as Empowerment, The Virtue of Art Therapy by Anne Lawton, and The Healing Powers of Art by Domingo Zapata. I was really curious in seeing what art could do because I had been working on a couple projects and in that there was a really great quote about art saves lives. And as I continued on from there, I discovered how much potential that art therapy has. So it's really great or it shows a lot of potential as a coping mechanism. And in one of the art, one of the papers from the National uh, Library of Medicine that I mentioned, there was examination of three studies done, I believe two in 2014 and one in 2009, that worked with prison inmates. The studies use art therapy intervention carried out in groups in group settings, and they lasted four weeks in the first study, uh, to 15 weeks in the most recent study in 2009. In the three studies. Uh, there was reported improvement attributed to art therapy intervention by showing uh, progress in the emotional state of these prison inmates. Additional studies were also done with elderly to help with their, their behaviors and coping with things like Alzheimer's. But while art therapy shows a lot of potential, at the time of recording this, more studies need to be done to show the effectiveness of dealing with mental illness. A few of the hurdles that are present with art therapy include cost that goes from materials, booking the, the session, being able to actually get out somewhere, and iterating forward. And the other, well, this kind of falls more into, into the, the latter, but getting out somewhere falls into accessibility. Also, how close are these art therapy art therapists within the community, or how many resources are available for art therapy uh, in, in one's immediate area? And that's really important to consider, because even if art therapy has a lot of potential, if there's not if it's not accessible to immediate communities, then that kind of dwindles. So next, I explored robotherapy which is literally therapy where you talk to a robot therapist instead of a human therapist. Now in the previous episode or previous episodes, I had talked a lot about AI and what AI's potential is in these markets and how many um, of these virtual assistants exist. Uh, my favorite still being Geekbox. But there's also a couple of pitfalls and we talked about that as well in a couple episodes um, prior, where 
there's there's problems with how machines learn. It's still a relatively new technology. We don't have a lot of policies and regulations that kind of outline this. And there are some great things that robotherapy and AI therapists are able to do. But there's also some barriers. So first, let's go over some of the great things that come out of robotherapy or um, AI therapeutics. So some of the items that are on the market were Kiki, a robotic companion from Zotic AI, which kind of is is like this like small little uh, robot that emotes and can learn to adapt to your needs and kind of communicate with you. And when it comes into contact with other um, Kiki bots, they're able to share information and grow. The second is Buddy the Emotional Robot from Blue Frog Robotics. Buddy is really interesting because it not only addresses the issue of being kind of this emotional support robot, but it's also able to connect to a smart home, um, it has built-in security, it's educational for children, and it helps uh, senior citizens. So it's a very versatile robot um, It offers a, a range of services, which I haven't looked too much into any case studies in um, in Buddy, but there there's a lot that it offers, and it's really interesting to um, to explore. So the big part with these robots is that they fill this emotional gap through companionship, and that's really important because sometimes, like with elderly people. The sad thing is that they're not always given the attention and, and love and affection that they need. And during COVID, with isolation, that becomes even more concerning, as they may not have access to internet, um, they may have they may be self-isolating um, in order to remain safe, and sometimes they may not be able to get full access to the services that they need, as so much is kind of based online in our modern digital age. And that's looking at the the very optimal side, <laughs> as that doesn't really encompass all people, all senior citizens uh, during COVID. But I do hope that they're all being safe. And I also went back to Gatebox um, from Japan. So, as a refresher, Gatebox is a holographic AI of this kind of anime character, and this anime character. Usually, usually more perpetuated as female in its um, advertisements, but can be male or kind of like a, a creature, uh, a robot, acts as this kind of either significant other or a caring friend that shows that you have importance um, to it. In the commercial, the way it's portrayed is it's tar- it's, seems to be targeting people who are suffering from social isolation um, that may not have a significant other or that feel just that their work consists only of um, of work, sleep, and then eating. And then it kind of just falling into like what where their importance falls, so ideas of self-worth. And that is something that's really been huge in Japan. Um, and it's great to see this kind of product come out. While there is controversy regarding Gatebox and dating AI, um, or even just having an AI companion like that, there's also really great benefits that come to this. Uh, and this is really important because 
this, these products address feelings of isolation and feelings of self-worth. And the reason that is huge is because according to the Mental Health America reports, the number of people screening with moderate to severe symptoms of depression and anxiety has continued to increase throughout 2020 and remains higher than rates prior to COVID-19. In September 2020, the rate of moderate to severe anxiety peaked with over eight in 10 people who looked, um, who took the anxiety screen scoring with moderate to severe symptoms. So, and they've been, and those eight to 10 people who took that screening have been consistently testing with moderate to severe symptoms since the beginning of March, 2020. And more people are reporting frequent thoughts of suicide and self-harm than have ever been recorded in the image MHA screening program since its launch in 2014. Since the COVID-19 pandemic became um, spread so rapidly in, in March 2020, over 1,000, uh, over 100,000, 178,000, sorry, I keep stumbling over numbers, have reported frequent suicidal ideation. 37% of people have reported having thoughts of suicide in more than half or nearly every day of September 2020. So that's really concerning. Thus, these products like Gatebox, Kiki, and Buddy are really important. And what I really enjoyed about uh, looking at uh, Kiki and Gatebox was that it was targeting um, people that were kind of ranging to like their early to like late 20s or probably like 22 to like around 30 something, um, 33, because there's been an increase in these symptoms hitting younger people. And that's really bad. And it's been exacerbated with minorities and LGBTQ plus. And that's really scary to think about because depression and anxiety can lead to, you know, or severe depression and severe anxiety can lead to suicidal thoughts. And suicide is, is not a joke. Suicide is something that needs to be addressed and designed out of our society. We need to have resources for that. So continuing on, in continuing my exploration of robotherapy and AI therapy, they do show that they have a lot of potential. A survey conducted by Oracle of 12,347 global respondents reveals that 68% of people would rather would rather talk to a robot over their manager about stress and anxiety at work. And 80% of people who took the survey are open to having a robot as a therapist or counselor. Additionally, 75% say that AI helped their mental health at work. Um, and the top benefits that were noted in the survey were providing the information that was needed to do their job more effectively at 31%. Automating tasks and decreasing workload to prevent burnout at 27%, and reducing stress by helping prioritize tasks at 27%. In fact, out of all 12,347 respondents, only 18% of participants stated they would prefer a human therapist. At the time of, of looking into this, um, I didn't get the exact age demographics. Um, what I do know is that it was, it was a global survey, 
and that the total amount of participants or respondents were 12,347. So this is a very nice piece of data. So what's great about robotherapy and AI therapy is that it provides immediate assistance um, and it creates a, a sense of increased confidentiality because you don't have to feel that you're revealing yourself to a person or that you have to be um, kind of like zoned out as or kind of like pulled out and identified as that one person going to therapy. There's a lot of confidentiality in that. Um, and while there are some, some great things about this, there's also a lot of impediments for a large-scale implementation. And these impediments can be broken up into three categories, um, workplace obstacles, clinician obstacles, and client obstacles. So these obstacles and these impediments are informed by a research article from the National Library of Medicine titled Current Challenges and Barriers to Real-World Artificial Intelligence Adoption for the Healthcare System, Provider, and Patient. And an article from the Harvard Business Review titled Adopting AI in Healthcare Will Be Slow and Difficult. So when we look into this, um, AI and robot therapy for business is argued to be difficult because um, on the business end because it needs to be integrated into the company culture. This means that this entire company has to have a paradigm shift in healthcare delivery, um, organizing um, how the AI is going to be laid out, what it's going to be doing in daily activities, um, what its business objectives um, are, and if that artificial intelligence really aligns with that. Implementation, how is this going to be ruled out? You know, what is what is the adoption and distribution of AI or robotherapy? What are the key um, what are the KPIs? Like what what do we need to measure in order to ensure that this this form of therapy is being successful? And what is the ROI? Sadly, it always kind of comes down to like these business investments and I say sadly only because of me jumping the gun a little bit and getting into uh, DEI. So I want to take a step back before I get into that and just kind of mention that the biggest obstacle is really kind of communicating the value of the AI to overhead. And now that I've stated that, this kind of moves into aspects of DEI. Um, depending on the situation, because one avenue is that you, you can see that a smaller business may not have the immediate funds to get um, something that is really reliable and FDA approved. The other aspect of this is that there, there may be a larger business that has the funds, but overhead or um, leadership will will see that it's not the best investment that may be justified and that may not be depending on the business and dei is really great because it kind of helps navigate in structuring what is what is really necessary to help the employees and ensure a diverse equitable and inclusive workspace and that as we had kind of covered in episode uh, 11 with um, Tara Furiani, not the HR lady, 
is really important to everything from like what kind of health services you get to just being, you know, like comfortable being at work and not having to be screamed at by your boss. Um, so let's kind of move forward into the clinician end because I want to talk about DEI after I get through all of this. So on the clinician end, obstacles include implementation, the learning curve for using um, and working with AI technologies, uh, and setting up an AI-competent physician workhorse. So let's go over the first one, which is implementation. Again, kind of like like business, what does it look like in, in, bring, in rolling out AI? What's going to be the most um, effective and we're going to uh, method of doing so, and then what are going to be the crucial areas where AI needs to be, and what are going to be areas where there needs to be a you know a human doctor or a nurse. Then let's go into um, the the learning curve and using and working with AI technologies. We have to consider like the level of one digital literacy that may kind of go across the board, and that's not to kind of shame doctors or, or anything in that sense. For the most part, they, you know, like I'm, I'm making a kind of like more of a statement about like trying not to generalize doctors. I, I could in, infer that based on the technologies that we have, like telehealth, um, you know, web services and so forth, even if they're not fully optimized, that they there is a form of digital literacy. But working with artificial intelligence really kind of shifts a lot of different dynamics. It's like if you have, um, in the case study that we provided last time from the TED Talk, as to being able to scan and screen for certain um, certain patterns and giving out like treatments to doctors, that worked great. But when you look at larger hospitals, what would that where where would AI go? Would it solely be in um, dealing with, you know, scanning through information. How is that going to learn for a series of, um, of diseases? Can an AI with the machine learning techniques that we have now be able to go through all that um, steadily and gradually? And as we know from our, from our previous episode, AI has trouble with kind of like, with kind of like recognition of of imagery or like kind of dimension, and that could be really really hazardous if it's trying to di- diagnose something. But it's really good with kind of like building in data and so forth. But there's also been kind of in that um, eight million mind uh, project mentioned in the prior episode that feeding it data in a certain way uh, can also help address and expedite certain services. But that all takes a lot of planning. Um, and, you know, wh- what about AI and kind of like setting up patient um, appointments? Would that be optimal? Or would it be better to just to have, you know, a, a doctor do that or a nurse do that? Or would it even be better to have just like a web application for that? And even with that, there are certain obstacles in the way that that would be implemented. Um, the cost for doing that, uh, was it what the UI would look like for that? You know, what would need to be done? Would it be accurate? Can there be problems in going through um, voice recognition? There's a lot of things that would need to be taken into consideration. 
and being able to work and maneuver through all that will take adjustments. And again, that's where it, it this statement of AI, um, you know, the, the learning curve and in, in the, in the competent workforce is really important because it's, again, not to shun down or kind of like make any negative or derogatory statements or infer any of that on doctors, but there are levels and layers of complication that need to be taken in consideration when doing so. And then the um, setting up an AI competent physician workforce is, you know, that's more about what the future uh, physicians will need in order to collaborate with um, AI developers in implementing new technologies and workflows. And you have to also consider that doctors are already like kind of bombarded with a series of um, burnout burnout from studying, addressing things, doing you know jumping from appointment to appointment, and adding to their workflow can be critical in either like leaving them with either more burnout or kind of alleviating some of some of that that pressure and what that what that kind of collaboration will do um is really important to kind of plan out and break down and you know address and that's difficult because ai is still really like new and emerging technology um it's not fully developed and we don't we there's a lot of uncertainties about it um so kind of planning that out is going to look differently and even questions like is this ai going to be specific for this and we're going to have different ais is each doctor going to have ai is it going to be a hive mind or <laughs> like that idea of a, a hive mind ai but you know in all seriousness what will that look like now let's get into the patient side um on the patient side there's concerns regarding trusting you know what's going to happen to your data and answering certain questions there's concerns about the security of ai too like what if that that ai is taken over or what if there's a virus how can that impact either data collection or even patient confidentiality and there's a lot of layers to this um having worked as a um it technician before hipaa is really strict in the way that uh, technology is kind of rolled out and is implemented and when you're dealing with confidential patient data that's really important um so that kind of also addresses back to some of the clinician um, obstacles in kind of navigating and what that'll look like. Um, and even the IT, IT infrastructure and team um, currently operating inside of these, um, these clinics. Because if you're introducing new technologies, how does that merge with um, existing technologies? What does that mean for the information architecture? What if something isn't, isn't adaptable? Um, or backwards compatible with like an older technology. Um, and what does that mean for like patients having who are not as digitally literate um, needing to adapt to new technologies? And there's also the question of where is AI best during patient treatments? Is it invisible and just behind the scenes? Is it able to uh, notify and contact uh, patients and update them? You know, these are all really big questions, and they don't really have a simple answer. This is something that is kind of layered and interconnected, and that's something that needs to be wrangled out. And part of that, too, is, is looking at 
what's going to be necessary for each community and what clinic, um, you know, and is that all other policy is going to affect it, you know, just kind of like this general kind of scape? What does that look like? Um, so that's all really important. Now, I had mentioned the FDA a little earlier, but FDA approval is really huge um, in in dealing with AI. Uh, there's actually a booklet that the FDA had pushed out as a proposal for what the future of these like of emergent of emergent digital technologies for clinicians will look like, and it's still kind of like in the works, but there's still kind of this framework, and it's updating because so many changes are going on with technology. And when you consider how fast technology is updating, you know, are those proposals written at that specific time still applicable? What happens if, you know, one technology just kind of goes out, you know, or if it changes completely in the way that it's used and integrated or if it advances? Um, you know, because if we're, if we're talking about AI the way it is now and not really kind of looking into 50, 80 years in the future, which is going to fly by really fast. It may not seem like it because of the way we experience time, but that is a really important question to ask because, you know, and it, how accurate can we predict it as to where it's going to be and what it's going to do and how we're using it um, and even what it's capable of. So those are all things that are really important to consider. Now, the other aspect are regulatory frameworks. What is um, what is this going to look like in the way that it is kind of provided um, to patients? You know, what are going to be certain boundaries with AI and the way it collects um, data, or what is it? What are going to be certain boundaries in interactions? Um, how is this going to be structured? What is that going to look like? And again, there's a lot of uncertainty there. And lastly, I had touched on this a little earlier, but machine learning for medical treatment. Um, we have to consider the way that machines learn is very different from how we learn. And we're still kind of playing around with a lot of that now. And I believe that there's a lot of potential there, but these are also things that need to be considered. Um, and just because a machine is able to learn um, one way for a specific kind of field, does that mean that it's also able to work the same way and learn the same way and, and apply the same techniques for machine learning in clinical. So those are all things that we need to consider. And lastly, robot therapy and AI are really great, but we have to consider the manufacturing time um, and how long it takes to program and develop these processes and update how to iterate forward. Um, those, are, those are all really, really big questions. Um, because we could be enamored with the hype and the, the kind of like, ooh, shiny of these programs and of these platforms, but, you know, we, this is after they've been kind of like gone through the ropes of everything and then pushed out. And even then we know that there's going to be updates and changes, um, for compatibility, for features and so forth. And that might be a longer process. And what if we are really in need of certain um, certain features or certain um, capabilities from these robots or um, AI, what would be necessary to, to reduce that implementation time and what would be necessary to ensure that 
it's secure and it's meeting FDA and you know it's it's being used in the way that it needs to be used. Um, you know, running user tests, trying to like you know break the system. So much goes into that on the back end, and I'm I'm not saying I'm a technologist. Um, it's just those are all really important things. And you know, what is what is the specialty gonna in the in that field gonna look like? What is um, are there going to be any differentiations in the the AI that we're providing over to doctors that then what is in a commercial vehicle than what's in a video game? And we could already kind of see that in video games, the AIs are really simple um, and allow for certain things, but they still seem incredibly complex and lifelike because of the way that we experience and interpret things. And with self-driving cars, it's a completely different field. So there's still so much that needs to be kind of considered. And I, I reiterate that over and over because there is a lot of uncertainty. And to just say that a technology is great because it's new is, is really dangerous. And that is detrimental. I, can't, I cannot stress that enough uh, to people receiving treatment. So now that we've kind of gone through a robot therapy and <laughs> the fun FDA and all these kind of like these layers of business, clinician, and patient. What about barriers to mental health and telehealth services just overall? So telehealth can be a godsend, especially when you lack access to, to physical clinics or you know you don't even have transportation to get yourself to a hospital. But what happens to those who are impacted by the digital divide? Not everyone has access to internet or is digitally savvy. In a recent public project that I'm working on for the city of Long Beach, I discovered residents in large cities struggle not only to obtain internet access, but also have digital literacy. Part of, part of this is the cost of internet services, reliable inter and reliable internet connection. Now, Reliable internet connection can range anywhere from $60 to $120 a month, depending on the speed. And I want to take a moment to really quickly def talk about reliable internet and connection and speed. There's been a lot of debate as to 10, 10 megabytes per second being sufficient, and it's not. And the pandemic has demonstrated that. 10 megabytes per second does is not a speed that is reasonable or really suited for the our modern digital age. That probably would have been great like in 1990 or or something of the sort, but now with how heavy programs are, you know, all the things that we need to do from watching videos to taking courses online to referencing stuff to sending emails to working virtually to even just being able to get access to telehealth that requires incredibly like that just requires stable internet and when i say stable i mean internet that is going at a, at a decent speed so that you're not lagging and that isn't throttled and has an uptime of at least 98 percent i mean if you if you don't have internet or it goes, or that connection goes down in your area for an entire day. 
imagine, you know, how, how far behind you're going to get, like how many meetings you're going to miss, how many clients you're not going to be able to send um, deliverables to, you know, are you missing class? Are you able to catch up? What if you have to turn something in? And if you, you can't, imagine having to, to figure out that you need to put money into some sort of, some sort of transportation, money that you may not have in order to go somewhere um, like a friend's or like some kind of public resource that may be minutes to even hours away from your house just to be able to take care of, of certain things for class, school, work, or even personal matters that may concern your health. And is that safe? When I talk about safety, I, n- I mean not only being out um, in public during a pandemic, but what about the security of the internet of where you're accessing it from? You know, what if what happens if you leave yourself logged in on your school page at some like uh, com- library computer? Is there is there a reliable service that you know that once you step away that that computer is going to shut off and wipe, or is there a possibility that someone could come in? What if those computers are infected? What if, um, you know, you you have like a, a mistake where you think you log out, but you didn't? What if there's sensitive information that someone is able to pry while you're busy submitting, you know, health records or, you know, taking care of something for unemployment? That is all something that is very important and needs to be considered. And not having a reliable access to that at your home immediately is something that is detrimental. Um, I'm probably going to be using that word a lot throughout uh, this episode because there's just so much that is, you know, concerning. So in our modern digital age, we require fast, dependable, and easily deployable internet services. When you think of everything you do, again, like everything just from like emails, meetings, class, and even just moments where you just want to take a moment to yourself and maybe watch a show, um, that, that you're using, you're not only using gigs of data, so if you have a limited plan, like you're you're kind of shot in the foot, but you're also in a position where your very livelihood, your ability to make money, to take care of yourself, um, connect with someone that, you know, may be in a dire situation and you're checking in on them, how all that is connect, um, impacted by reliable internet connection. And really all this pandemic has done is make it incredibly clear and visible how how much this in fact affects us so now in, a, in addition to having internet connection there's a need to become digitally literate this means knowing how to troubleshoot technologies like just basic things like hotspots routers um, you know some computer issues and even using programs such as Microsoft Word Excel uh, opening up your email uh, signing in and, and filling out forms. And some of you may be kind of cracking up at this, but th- this is something that a lot of us take for granted. And again, in that in that public um, project for Long Beach, I discovered some really shocking information. Um, there are entire families in cities like Los Angeles and Long Beach that struggle with these tasks. And that includes children, that includes parents, that includes 
working class adults that are ages 22 to 30, and yeah, senior citizens. But if you have the stigma of digital people that are digitally illiterate or not as digitally savvy or have the technolo- the necessary technology skills as being just senior citizens, you're really excluding a large part of the population. Imagine growing up where you actually didn't have internet and you couldn't log into Facebook. You couldn't use apps. You, you know, never really got to use Microsoft Word. Everything was done by hand. And then you're thrown into a workplace where you need to work in Word. And even something like trying to figure out how to align your paragraph, create bullets, or um, bold a sentence is is challenging. And it's, it's not funny because that leaves so many people out of potential job prospects. That leaves people falling behind in education because if you're trying if you're struggling trying to just open up Microsoft Word and get certain things done and not even complex things like you know advanced formatting and and you know creating like um, footnotes or any of that um, or using formulas in Excel like just just basic things like inputting italicizing and even just sa- you know even saving your work just figuring that out will put you like behind in your work will put you behind in you know your your schooling and it's not your fault and there needs to be more services that provide um these this kind of like digital literacy course for people of all ages that they need this um and i saw in a, in a social media post um one kind of like looking around the internet to follow up on some of this after being just completely like mind blown, there are, you know, there's an extreme case of like people in, in remote villages where they, in their schools, they're like drawing out Microsoft Word and kind of walking through it. Or, you know, they're kind of like reading, reading books, but they don't have computers and they can't get the hands on experience, but they're getting knowledge through this, like, you know, through this through the literature and if you ever try to read a book on microsoft word (laughs) um it's it's a lot more time consuming and a lot more kind of like jarring in the sense of like thinking you know like you have to look for a certain button in this area and this condition when literally it's just you move your mouse to some place and you click on that and bam like you have an italic you have you know, or URL, um, you're able to change your format, so forth. It, it's kind of crazy to think about that, but you, you know, like we, we don't because some of that is really invisible. Um, so, sorry, I got lost in my notes because I kind of, kind of went in a little bit more of a tangent, uh, on that, but, uh, Part of this is also the, the policies. Um, you know, what what does this look like? You know, how are we providing digital literacy courses? How are we um, breaking down barriers? How are we giving people access to internet? Um, and then how are we teaching them about really great services and how to keep in contact with certain resources or find certain resources? Um, so talking about systems and policies and regulations, 
those actually act as another barrier to mental health resources. Um, and that ranges from the types of products that are available, even down to like what what your income eligibility is to get covered or even receive discounts um, on on like stuff like medicine or like you know medication for psychotherapy. Those are all really big things that we may not consider immediately. Um, and oh, okay, oh boy, this is gonna be like. This, this part for me in researching it was the most heartbreaking. Um, and policies really kind of started leading into health insurance coverage. And there's a, there's a big sigh on my end because it's, it's serious. You know, the millenn- millennials, my generation, are going without health care. And let's... Don't just take my word for it. Let's go into the research. So, healthcare um, coverage costs and access to healthcare are impacted, and it is it is just insane. Articles from um, CNBC, um, The Guardian, Vice, Forbes, and the National uh, Library of Medicine state that the cost of health insurance is just it's too high. It's skyrocketed. Um. An article by the by the Guardian uh, covers the impact to medical costs and work policy, titled uh, "The Americans Dying Because They Can't Afford Healthcare." In fact, as many as twenty five as much as twenty five percent of the country puts off medical help because they can't afford the cost. This article also continues in going on, like examining a story of Susan Finley, a fifty three year old woman who was laid off from her job at Walmart. For taking one extra day off beyond what was allowed by Walmart's attendance policy due to medical concerns. As a result of losing her job, Finley lost her medical coverage. Sadly, oh God, this is like hard. Sadly, three months later, she was found dead in her apartment after avoiding the doctor for flu-like symptoms. Quote, she was barely scraping by and trying not to get evicted. She gets what appears to to be as a basic cold or flu. Um, didn't go to the doctor um, for the at, and risk spending money because she didn't have um, the money to cover it. And as a consequence, she passed away. So this article also reveals that in two thousand eighteen, a total of three point six five trillion dollars. Was spent on healthcare, and the costs over of the the costs are projected to grow at an annual rate of five point five percent over the next decade. That's annually, which is insane. Um, and this this results in Americans exasperating their conditions because they delay, avoid, or stop medical treatment, and that can result in death, just like in Susan Finley. Also covered in this article is that is a statement of a 2009 study conducted by researchers at Harvard Medical uh, School found that 45,000 Americans die every year as a direct result of not having health insurance coverage, and in 2008, uh, 2018, sorry, 27.8 million Americans went without any health insurance for the entire year. Now, that's just a physical health condition. So, 
let's add mental health into this equation. The Center for American Progress reports that in an article titled um, Mental Health Care Was Severely Inequitable, then the coronavirus crisis came along. Oh, then, then came the corona crisis. The article states that in 2016, 11.8 million Americans had a need for medical um, of, of mental health services that went unmet. Of these, nearly 38% could not afford the cost of treatment. Moreover, only one in five people with substance use disorder received treatment in 2016, and only slightly more than 40% of adults with any mental health illness received treatment in 2017. Also, critically, the intersection of systemic racism um, fuels a lot of the disparities that are laid bare by COVID-19 pandemic. Racial groups that have historically been discriminated against, such as African Americans, American Indians, Alaska Natives, use mental health services at substantially lower rates than white Americans. For people without insurance coverage, out-of-pocket costs to uh, health coverage are far from affordable. Notably, people of color who are more likely um, are pe notably people of color are more likely than non-Hispanic whites to be uninsured with Hispanic or Latinx Americans, American Indians, and uh, Alaska Natives all being more than two and a half times more likely than non-Hispanic whites to be uninsured. Even those with insurance coverage often experience difficulties uh, access accessing mental health services. More than half of the U.S. countries have no practicing psychiatrists, 37% of countries have no psychologists, and two-thirds of countries um, of counties, sorry, uh, have no psychiatric nurse practitioners. So I meant to say counties, not countries. <laughs> I, I sincerely apologize for that. Um, Non-metropolitan counties have an even higher likelihood of having no access to providers. Moreover, psychologists are far less likely than any providers to accept any type of insurance. When 73% of other, other providers accept Medicaid, only 43% of psychiatrists accept Medicaid. Um, and slightly more than half of psychiatrists accept Medicare and, and private insurance, compared with more than 86% of other providers. So that is, that is insane. So not only is the cost high, not, and we don't have enough um, you know, psychiatrists, but we can't even use insurance for the most part to cover this. So part of that problem also kind of comes out um, with credible messengers. So even if you are able to get insurance, what if you're not comfortable with that psychologist because you can't, you don't feel that they can empathize with you because either they may not have experience what you have, or they may not even, you know, have similar features that make you feel kind of adjusted and comfortable in their office or communicating with them and sharing certain things that are in, in depth and personal. And that is important. That's really important, not just for people of color, but for LGBTQ+, plus, you know, females, uh, even even ma CIS, CIS um, males, white males. And it's just, you know, all of that is really important. You should feel comfortable with your psychologist and you should feel uh, that 
year and a, a therapy session that is meeting all the needs that you have without you having to hold back or be in fear or something or not feel comfortable all of that is incredibly important now nami uh, iowa adds studies show that nearly one-fourth of, Amer- of african americans are uninsured a percentage 1.5 times greater than um, the white rate the average um, private provider as in uh, clinical social workers psychiatrists and, and um, psychiatrist charges between 60 to 300 dollars for a 45 minute session and works primarily out of network on a monthly basis mental health treatment alone can occur uh, an out-of-pocket cost of 120 dollars up to 1200 dollars and we also again kind of lack credible messengers people that look like and empathize with the patients that they're treating and that's really important Sometimes that means, you know, the difference between being able to open up and share and, and address issues that are deeply rooted and, and heal from that and not and letting that eat away at you. And then you kind of fall back into the cycle where it, it doesn't work out. And that that is concerning. Okay, so... God, it's just like, there's so much in this. Um, and even in just being non-biased in any of this information, it's it's a lot emotionally um, to, to read, to learn about, and to understand. And now a big contributing factor to our broken healthcare system is also the fact that we focus on reactive treatments more so than preventative measures for both physical and mental health. Uh, mental Health America addresses this issue um, of reactive services and reveals that reactive services are way more costly than preventative services. They actually break it down um, in a really great table in the fact sheet that they provide um, in in their page. Um, Additionally, preventative measures are bolstered when paired with promotion. And in the fact sheet provided by the the mental, um, the MHA, Mental Health America, the IOM uh, report defines promotion as efforts to enhance individuals' abilities to achieve developmentally appropriate tasks and a positive sense of self-esteem, mastery, well-being, and social inclusion to strengthen their ability to cope with adversity. So that that's really important to be able to like be like, yeah, you know, this this helps you and and build people up um, because going through rough times, not not everyone may be as resilient as you know, their peer. Um, and that can be, you know, the difference between chronic depression and being able to kind of get out of certain, of certain detrimental paths that may lead to thoughts of suicide. And that, that is scary. So when we look at uh, prevention, Prevention programs show significant results in preventing substance abuse, conduct disorder, antisocial behavior, aggression, child maltreatment, and targeting specific mental illnesses. The statement, targeting specific mental illnesses, is crucial. Um, research reveals that this is because illnesses don't always show up at a fixed point in one's life. You're, you're not going to be, um, you know, you're, you're not going to say, hey, well, he hasn't shown signs of depression at, like, 
12 years of age, he's not going to develop this later, or he's not going to develop social anxiety, or he's not going to, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, one, one great case is schizophrenia. That can pop up in your late 20s. And um, was it, uh, Students with Psychosis um, does a really great job of, of breaking all that down and what that looks like. Um, Cecilia, uh, the, the founder, Cecilia, had a really great TED Talk sharing some of her experiences and how it kind of just like it came up and what it's like living with that. And she founded Students with Psychosis because of her own of her own experiences. Two of the most noteworthy being that she shared being where she felt that she was having a psychotic episode. Um, she con- you know informed everyone very calmly and um, agreed to be um, to go back to um, is it the ward and be taken care of and monitored so that she could deal and cope with it and then also get the medication that she needs. Um, and everyone was cool, and then they called the cops. And what could have just been, you know, her getting dropped off and checking herself in willingly became an entire ordeal of having to get handcuffs put on her, um, you know, having to be, per, you know, walk through her uh, her dorms and be seen by everyone and be outed and that is that is nothing less than just malicious and as a result she sent it, she she founded students with psychosis to start informing and making changes and helping people in it and it's a great organization um i follow them on instagram they have um great talks uh, i believe she has a podcast and they do kind of like live karaoke and poetry on on Instagram, and it's a really great uh, experience to either come as a student who is dealing with psychosis, or as an ally who is trying to just stay informed and understand uh, and learn about what needs to be done on our part to to help and create a more hospitable environment and educate ourselves in interactions with with people who are dealing with things like schizophrenia and normalize it. The other aspect, the other, or the other story that she shared was painful because she, there was a student that identified and had been um, just accepted that she had um, schizophrenia and she was kind of coming out about it. Um, And she had kind of like, I forgot how she had been outed in the story, but before she can get the help and really kind of like start kind of owning and, and and getting like um, the services that she needs, she sadly committed suicide and it was just too late by day. Um, and those stories seem to be very common uh, based off research. And organizations like NAMI, organizations like Students with Psychosis are critical. Uh, and this kind of goes back into, you know, just because it doesn't show up at one fixed point doesn't mean that like you're not susceptible to getting uh, things like depression or anxiety. Um, mental hardships can result uh, from environmental, social, or personal factors due to hardships. And things like depression, anxiety can kind of creep in for a period of time and, and kind of be absolved. 
or they can have effects that persist and require great le uh, greater levels of intervention and assistance. And pre what prevention does, even for, for other mental illnesses, is that it can help individuals cope and identify when they need to seek help. And that is incredibly important. Okay, so now that we've kind of gone over that entire fiasco of just really heavy information, um, the last thing I want to mention before going into the approach is DEI. As a refresher, DEI stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. I had the pleasure of talking to uh, Tara Ferriani uh, to break down the importance of DEI in episode 11, The Workplace and Mental Health. I had stated towards the end of the episode that I would look into counter-arguments uh, to provide an unbiased view, um, and well, the main arguments I had come across mention cost, implementation, and value. There, there's really no tippy-tone around this. Terror, terror, otherwise known as not the HR lady, utterly obliterated any arguments against DEI. This is especially true for employees that are female, minority, or LGBTQ+, as they incur numerous barriers to access and inclusion in the workspace. And in case any Caucasian males are concerned that DEI excludes them or disenfranchises them, it really doesn't. First off, DEI ensures that the company culture creates a safe, welcoming, and equitable environment for all employees. Additional DEI addresses issues with healthcare, payment, um, and treatment. That means that the type of healthcare options that are available to you, um, getting stuff like reproductive health services for women could be really important. Uh, I won't go into the graphic details of, of last episode. Um, actually, no, it's really important to say this. Like Things like periods are normal, and things like tampons and having availability to, to get what is necessary for women is just that that shouldn't be a debate that needs to be addressed and I know that I shouldn't kind of put any per, any like any bias in here but there there's really no solid argument that backs that up um you know women don't need don't need tampons well you know they release a, a <laughs> A lot of blood once a month um, and having access to that is really important even stuff like just having uh, those available in the office can probably make a really huge difference um, you know as a heterosexual male like I, I don't want to comment or make any like statements on that but it's it's been something that's been just fought over for such a long time and it's really innocuous there you're no one's destroying anything and it's necessary for women that just needs to happen and and tara really kind of broke that down in that really great episode um episode 11 i, I recommend if anyone hasn't checked it out to go to go uh, back in the episode list go to episode 11 and just give it a listen it, it does get a little graphic um but it needs to be normalized and you know, me having to mark this episode as graphic too, well, I don't think it should be, but I will um, because that's 
certain certain people may not be mature enough to to handle that unfortunately but those those are all things that are important and that's that's also hygiene for the workplace and things that you know need to be accommodated for people um you know and additionally dei make sure that you get fair compensation that you're not being berated by your boss and that you're get, getting access to mental health services that are appropriate for you and that you may need. What if you're you're dealing with, you know, a loss in the family? What if you've just had, you know, a horrific breakup and that is something that, you know, a, a young worker is going through, BIPOC or not? Death and loss and, and things, they impact people emotionally. And having those services is really important. So lastly, DEI doesn't force anyone out of, of their space. It really just makes more room and improves the quality of life for employees. And it's it's an initiative that needs to be taken by leadership. So if you are curious about DEI, what it can do for you, and learning more about it, I highly recommend checking out Not the HR Lady. Um, not the HR Lady streams on YouTube, on Spotify, and you can also visit Tara's website at notthehrlady.com. Um, she offers some amazing services, has a really great book called Fuck Your Office Snacks, and proposes a series of um, services to help um, bring your, your company up to speed. So now <laughs> we kind of got through all those chunks and I've caught you up to everything that's necessary to go through this five whys method, um, let's get to it. So just as a refresher, because this was stated at the beginning of the episode, the approach is questioning the question, and we're suspending our disbelief before we jump into any one direction and start designing or um, kind of creating a solution to address this. In using this this method, I will, I'm going to state, you know, so why is it important we do this? And then we're going to explore that five times, and we're just going to ask why. And this is going to reveal different layers of depth regarding, you know, um, the season's project. So let's get started. Number one. So why is it important to explore esports players burning out? That's because professional esports players are facing things like mental health issues, um, with extreme anxiety, stress, burnout, and physical injury that can lead to short-lived careers. So number two, why is that important? It's important because esports players are emblematic of a much larger segment of workers that struggle with mental health, um, with mental health and well-being, and work incredibly long hours um, at, at their job. Okay, number three. So why is that important? That's important because our society is rampant with issues regarding mental health, well-being, to, and to the point of anxiety and depression being deemed a pandemic. Number four. Okay, so why is that important? <laughs> because we are lacking in community resources, clinicians, and access to services that address the needs of professionals, community members, and students. <sighs> Number five. Okay. So why is that important? That's important because our healthcare system focuses on reactive treatments instead of preventative treatment, while costs 
social stigmas, policies, and accessibility act as barriers to our well-being. Okay, so it's so weird kind of like going through that and role-playing both sides, but we have our five reasons why. Now, looking back at this, I think that the areas that I can operate in and that need to be addressed are why number four, because we're lacking in community resources, clinicians, and access to services um, that professionals, community members, and students need. And number five, because our healthcare system focuses on reactive treatment instead of preventative treatment, while costs, social stigmas, policies, and accessibilities uh, act as barriers for our well-being. So I would just like to say that two things. The first is, at the beginning of the season, if I had jumped the gun and developed something for esports burnout alone, I would have been kind of dealing with a superficial problem, and I would have missed uh, designing for the root of this problem. And that's really important because even if I made something to kind of slightly mitigate burnout, it wouldn't deal with the core issue, and that problem would either that that solution whether or not be resilient enough to last a long time or it wouldn't be able to cope with the increasing demands um, that are going forth. The second is that I'm also a designer. I'm not a I'm not a, a medical specialist. I'm not a physician. I'm not a clinician. Um, and while I'm I'm taking some geek certification trainings, that's more to inform me about how to develop a solution and what things are needed to consider. I am also not in, in government, so that's something that I can't address directly. But I can work some ways around all of these items. And things like community resources, services, accessibility, things like stigma, act, you know, accessibility, cost, and policies, I may not be in a position of a clinician or a government official to start making or enforcing changes, but as a designer, especially as a game designer uh, specifically, I can create a solution that will address these and start helping make shifts in our society through change theory. Whereas by focusing on, on something small and creating a, a, a strong, solid solution, over time, that, that'll iterate and start kind of allowing systems to build around that. Um, that will lead to a shift in cultural change. And as a game designer, before I, before I get into as a game designer what I'll do, I want to make something clear. And I've, I've, I need to make this clear because I've disliked some of the stigmas that come around with calling myself a game designer. Because even though I, I do create video games or tabletops or role-playing games, I'm not limited just to, to those mediums. Games are systems, they have rules, they have outcomes, they have willing players, they have conflict, and they're artificial. We had gone over this really early in the, in the season, um, I believe both in season one and at the beginning of season two. Now, the reason I'm stating this is because I'm on the mission to hunt down wicked problems, social and cultural issues that are behemoths wrecking the planet and, and our people. 
Sure, a video game might be an aspect of part of the solution, but it's not all I do, and it's not always what I'm going to do. Again, <laughs> I, will, I will say this, games are systems, they have rules, they have outcomes, they have willing players, they have conflict, and they are artificial. And if I were to say what my specialty is, it is in strategy, and it is in... So strategy and research are my specialties, and I have the ability to make. So I want to really utilize that to its maximum potential because it really, it really is a matter of life and death. And as a designer, I have the ability to make a difference. But enough of me going off in this like whole <laughs> kind of like moral, moral statement. This is the, the end of the episode, but what's coming up next in the define phase is identifying our users, setting a scope, defining success, looking at some case studies, breaking down the user journey, and I'm laughing because this is a lot, um, and defining our existing technologies. And I'm also going to start looking for potential partners to, to work on this project and address kind of the system. But that is all the time I have for today. So thank you so much for joining me today, and until next time, stay fantastic. Let me joke.